Alvin Bragg continues his study of medieval pilgrimage, which we started last week. Today, Mary Rubin and Kate Rudy look at the topic of religious relics. Secondly, Anthony Bale and Mary Rubin examine the experiences of pilgrims making long journeys. Finally, Kate Rudy looks at the possibility of going on a virtual pilgrimage. Can we talk now, Meru, to you about the role of religious relics? Uh, What powers were associated with them? And could you give us a few examples, please? From very early on, the very idea of a sacrament means that deep in Christianity is the belief that although grace is ineffable, grace travels through material things the water of baptism, the bread of the Eucharist, and so on. And so it was also quite easy to believe that the remnants of meritorious people could do the same. Now, that is really the beginning of relics. Now, when we talked about Christ, who was resurrected, and Mary, who was assumed into heaven, nonetheless, there are relics of their existence. When Helena went to the Holy Land, she became, in a way, a model for the identification of relics. She went and she found the Holy Cross, the Holy Blood, and so on. So there is a way in which that closeness to, I mean, obviously there's Christ and Mary, but to saintly people, to meritorious people, but also to holy places is absolutely crucial. What powers were associated with these relics, though? What powers did they have? You had a bit of the cross, you had bones. How, what makes them powerful? the grace that they help mediate, but also the fact that these were people, as it were, chosen by God, beloved of God, and therefore, like the Virgin Mary, they would be good intercessors. That is, praise to them somehow will open up God's ears. And shrines became sort of specialized. So, for example, in Italy, after the Black Death, there was a whole explosion of shrines that were associated with saints, even very minor ones, who could cure the plague, as it were. But if you go to a shrine like that all-important, truly European shrine at Canterbury, that of St. Thomas Becket, which developed in uh, from the 1170s, you get people coming for absolutely every type of cure. Can I turn to Kate for a moment now? What lengths would people go to to collect or control these uh, relics from or for these shrines? People went to great lengths to acquire them because they were so valuable. In fact, they were often so valuable that they couldn't be bought for regular money because somehow exchanging them for filthy lucre would debase them. And since the, the saints to which the the body parts belonged, still technically were alive and dwelling in heaven. They had opinions about where their physical bodies should be kept. And um, and if they weren't being venerated properly, they would allow themselves to be stolen. And stealing relics was so common that it had a had a name. It was furta sacra, the, the theft of, of uh, sacred objects. And this happened most famously in the ninth century in Conque in, in France, where uh, Benedictine monks were so desperate to acquire a powerful relic that they resorted to this. Uh, Their monastery lay just off the the main road to Santiago de Compostela, and they wanted to deflect the route slightly so that the pilgrim traffic would come through their town. And 
they they heard of a relic in Agen that was powerful. It was a the relic of a child saint named Saint Foy, who had been martyred in the fifth century under Diocletian. One of the Benedictine monks, his name was uh, Aaronistus. He he went from Conk to Agen, posing as a as a priest, and he asked to join the community there. And uh, he spent 10 years waiting for his moment. And as soon as he was alone with the relics, he grabbed them, ran back to Conk, uh, where his brothers were waiting, and enclosed the, the relics in, um, in a, a, this glorious reliquary made from golden uh, Roman spolia.
There's a hope sung by the St Michael singers. The words are by Stuart Townend and the tune by Mark Edwards. But now let's get back to hear more about pilgrimage in the Middle Ages. Kate Rudy, what was initially motivating people to set out on these much longer journeys? Your journey to Jerusalem, if you came from, from Britain or North Germany, whatever it was, uh, would, would have, there and back would have taken you something up to a year. So what was the power there? Why, were you, why did Marisa explain where you went? And, but was there another, any other motivating force? Three of the four Gospels actually exhort the reader to take up your cross and follow me. And Christians took this to mean that they should go to Jerusalem and walk in Christ's footsteps. And Christians really wanted to develop an empathic relationship with Jesus. But they wanted the fully immersive experience that the pilgrimage afforded. For example, at the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there was a, a chapel that had a stone basin for holy water. And pilgrims would put their heads in this hole and they would hear this great mournful rumbling. And they were told that this was the sound of the wretched souls in purgatory. It's just an example of the kind of sensory experience that they were seeking. And Mary was really, she was said to have been the first pilgrim because she retraced her son's footsteps along the road to Calvary each day until she herself was was assumed into heaven. And of course, Christ himself walked to the River Jordan to be baptized. And every subsequent pilgrim wanted to do the same, to plunge into the water and to commune physically and emotionally. When did the structures around pilgrimage, the pilgrimages itself are not in the Bible, penitence isn't, the, the, isn't the, when did these start to encrust the, uh, the Christian message and become as important as the Christian message itself? In Jerusalem in particular, they were really encrusted by the Franciscans who laid out the infrastructure. And ship captains based in Venice would take groups of pilgrims so that they could arrive in time to walk from Jaffa to to Jerusalem and arrive there on uh, the Day of Resurrection on Easter and thereby turn the the journey into a, a recreation of Christ's final walk to Calvary. And for other pilgrimages, I'm, I'm thinking about the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. St. James, his body was discovered, as it were, by a, a shepherd in 813 and uh, immediately a, a, a church built on that site. And from that point, he began to draw pilgrims, including Godelskalk from Lapuy, who was one of the first uh, recorded pilgrims in 851, to cross the Pyrenees and to gather an entourage and to visit the site of uh, the body of St. James.
the Lord, O My Soul, a Matt Redman song that, but sung there by Steph McLeod and the Celtic Worship Band. Malcolm Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 22. It's followed by James Agee's poem, Shore on This Shining Night, set to music by Morton Lauritsen and sung by Polyphony. Conducted by Stephen Layton. A response to Psalm 22. Before he shares with us the golden crown, he comes to share with us the crown of thorns. Our hurts and hates close in and hem him round, mock and humiliate him. All the scorns with which we blaspheme God in one another are concentrated here. Among the horns of the unicorns, the lion's mouths, the slather of our devouring wickedness. He takes it all and turns it into love. He gathers all of us and by atonement makes our peace with God. He speaks to us of mercy even as we pierce him. No one slakes his thirst. I tremble at the mystery. For Christ himself is crying through this psalm to suffer my own dereliction for me.
Larry and Judy Gentis live in Kirk Michael and belong to Pitlochry Baptist Church. Today, Judy imagines herself to be Martha, as described in the New Testament, Luke chapter 10 and John chapter 11. You know how the saying goes, idle hands find trouble. Well, I've never had that problem and I never will. I can think of nothing worse than sitting around with hands folded doing nothing. My name is Martha, by the way. Don't stop what you're doing. We can continue working and talking. I'm the oldest of three. My younger brother is Lazarus and my sister, my baby sister, is Mary. We live in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. We have a good friend who's well known around here. His name is Jesus and he goes from place to place, proclaiming God's goodness to people. He brings them hope. Well, we could all do with a dose of that. You see, he heals people, body and soul. Lepers, blind, deaf, fevers, all kinds of sickness are healed by him. He's even touched a man's coffin and commanded the dead man to rise. And he did. One day Jesus came to visit us and I wanted to make sure that everything was perfect. These things don't just happen and meals don't just appear at the table. They happen because someone, like me, works really hard to prepare it, or so I thought. Anyway, Jesus makes food appear out of nowhere, but that's another story. I was working really hard getting everything ready while Jesus was teaching in the other room, and my sister, Mary, sat at his feet. She didn't even notice that I was getting so stressed. I was getting on with all the preparation, and she just sat there. Finally, I got so fed up, I blurted out to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. I expected him to tell her to get up and be considerate and help me. But his answer was anything but that. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So, not only was he not going to rebuke her, he was actually commending her. I didn't understand it then. I do now. Anyway, one day out of the blue, my brother became really ill. He had a fever and couldn't keep any food down. He couldn't even drink water. He was dying and there was nothing I could do about it. Now Jesus had a special soft spot for Lazarus. So I sent him an urgent message and asked him to come because he was our only hope. Days went by. No Jesus. Then what I feared happened. My brother, Jesus' friend, died. There are no words to describe my loss and my hurt that Jesus hadn't come. Finally, four days after the funeral, he turned up, and I said to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died even now. I know that whatever you ask for God, he'll give it to you. And Jesus answered me, Your brother will rise again. (laughs) I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. 
After this conversation, I called Mary, and Jesus had a word with her. When he had finished, Jesus' face was wet with tears, and then he turned and he said in a soft but firm voice, Where have you laid him? The people who were there to mourn took him to the tomb, and he gave this very strange command. Remove the stone. I was horrified and said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stage, for he will have been dead for four days. And he answered me, showing a part of himself I'd never seen before. Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? Then some strong young men rolled away the stone as Jesus prayed. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Then, in a clear and loud voice, he cried out, Lazarus, come forth! My brother limped, my brother limped to the entrance of the tomb. You couldn't see his face for the cloths that were wound around him. The last thing that Jesus said was quiet and firm. Unbind him and let him go. So that's my story. As you can imagine, Jesus has turned my life upside down. Oh, I'm still a busy person having to look after Mary and Lazarus. But somehow, many things that used to be so important no longer are. Life is important, and that's what Jesus meant in the kitchen that day with Mary and at my brother's tomb. What could be more important than the life that Jesus gives us? This comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, and John chapter 11. <laughs> Show me the way. 
Isla Grant with her song He Walks Beside Me and He Will Guide Me. Alan Sorensen is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his God Spots and today he has one on Prestalgia. Do you know what we all suffer from? Prestalgia. That's right, Prestalgia. No, it's not an allergy to priests. Prestalgia is a word that someone coined to describe a wistful longing for something that hasn't yet happened. Yep, that's as Christians, a wistful longing for what is yet to be. You see, your actual Greeks, he said, sounding terribly pretentious, tried to explain the world by looking back and told funny wee stories about gods like Zeus and heroes and stuff like that. But the Bible, and us Christians, well, we explain the world by looking forward to the kingdom of heaven and saying, ah, well, that's the way it's supposed to be, and then longing to see it happen. So if you're kind of worried or confused, instead of looking back and going, look forward to what God has in store and go, oh, timely blessings to you. Thank you. 